Um, this week has been one, it seems to me, with a great deal in the news. There's been a lot of things that have been of, uh, you know, serious importance and have uh, come to light for us. One of them, one of them is the death of Kobe Bryant that struck so many people in that tragic helicopter accident with uh, his daughter uh, who was with him there amongst others. <clears throat> and uh, what has come out since, if you're not aware, is you know, how Kobe Bryant lived for basketball in many ways um, uh, epitomized basketball. But his death, while, while his life spoke about basketball, his death spoke about higher things. His death spoke about family and character. I think it also spoke about mortality, how quickly it can come the certainty of death for everyone and the need for meaning and hope in the midst of tragedy. These things all have come forward uh, in light of this. One person uh, wrote this, just not a Christian believer, but someone reflecting on Bryant's life and his uh, untimely passing said this, Bryant's passing reminds us of the ultimate dark truth we know but do not like to face that death comes to all of us, even the talented and famous. This is because uh, celebrities become permanent fixtures of our conscious reality. They represent that invincibility we all wish we possessed, right? We see them as godlike figures that will live forever. That's the quote. The reality is we are mortals and we have a date with death. There are some things that are very hard to deal with. <clears throat> some things that really take all that we are to deal with them and, and, and I believe that's what we have before us today. We're in the letter to the Philippians, Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi and uh, we have uh, worked through part of the first chapter and we're back to the first chapter this morning let me just remind you of some of the things we considered last week that paul's joy was a resurgent joy there just was no way to extinguish the joy of the apostle paul but remember he was in prison and he was there for preaching the gospel and it just it, that would seem to be an insurmountable obstacle to his mission he was proclaiming the gospel and then in prison, in prison. And of course, the conditions of a first century Roman prison are nothing like the conditions of our prisons today. This was difficult to say the very least. But astonishingly, in this context, Paul is full of joy. And when we ask why, our, our answers must include these first, because he knows that he's in prison by the will of King Jesus. Despite what Caesar may say, King Jesus could free him at any moment. It had happened before in Paul's life. And secondly, because Paul's imprisonment had served to advance the gospel. And that's where his joy was. The whole imperial guard, he says, that's the, the, the top uh, you know, soldiers in Caesar's, uh, at Caesar's disposal, they all know that he's in prison for preaching Christ. And the Christian believers are emboldened by Paul's sufferings to preach the gospel all the more fearlessly. 
Even the fact that there are some believers in the church who preach with selfish motives to slander Paul and deride him while he's in prison, this doesn't bother Paul. He's delighted that Christ is preached. That's the heart of somebody who knows Jesus. That's the heart of somebody who knows the power of the gospel and how it addresses all that we are and experience. And so Paul's joy abounds. And what we take home from all of this is that what matters above all is that Jesus Christ is preached. That's the deep and abiding conviction of everyone who names Jesus Christ as Lord and who walks as a follower. Without it, it's doubtful, actually, whether you even know what it is to be a Christian at all, if this isn't something that resonates in your heart. So do you believe it? Do you believe it, that what matters most is the declaration of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the world? Do you live it? Do you live it? So what we come to understand is that it's clear that Paul's past and present circumstances have no bearing on his joy. He looks beyond these things to something far greater, and that's the place from which he draws his joy. All that matters is that Christ is preached. The passage we come to today is where Paul turns from the past and present to the future. He turns to look to what is to come. And even there, he finds incredible joy. What we find is that as Paul faces the future, which could be imminent death for him, he's truly facing this, his joy remains unshakable. That ought to capture our interest. This this is uh, unique. This is powerful. And why is it true that his joy is unshakable? Because as Paul sees it, Every step forward is one step closer to the fullness of his salvation. It's one step closer to the fullness of what Christ has given, uh, the grace of Christ in his own death and resurrection. I'd like you to pick up the text with me in verse 18. I'll read for you. And as I do, let me say this. I I do think that there are some things that are very difficult for us to grasp from Scripture. And I, I think there are some things that are just so real that we, we just find it so hard to deal with them. We have created such an unreal life sometimes that when what is really real is spoken to us, we hardly know how to receive it. That's the labor that's before us today. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, the latter part of verse 18, it says this. Paul's spoken about how he's rejoicing, and then he says, yes. And I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. 
I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. I think there are some very precious lessons that we draw from this portion of Scripture, and the first of them is what Paul sees as his goal, his objective, and it's this, that Christ would be exalted in me. And this is what we all share as our goal as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, that he would be exalted in my life. Verse 20, that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What is our goal? What is Paul's goal? That unashamed and courageous, he will give his body for the exaltation of Christ. And whether that's through life the continuance of it, or death, the end of it. However it shapes up, the means is secondary. The goal is that Christ will be glorified in his body, and that is what is preeminent. Now imagine this. This is not, this, this is not uh, made up. This is Paul speaking out of his real experience and about his real goals that Christ will be exalted in his body. Paul had hoped that uh, he would witness boldly to the gospel, even before his accusers and uh, those who felt that they had him under their uh, control because shackled by their shackles and guarded by their guards. But Paul saw his victory not as dependent upon what happened there amongst men, even when it comes to the trial. Whether he's acquitted or not, that doesn't reveal the victory. Actually, the victory is that he will not be ashamed and that Christ will be exalted, whether it's by life or by death. It could be that the, uh, that the verdict would be his death. So even when he appears before the Roman tribunal, if it, results, if it results in his condemnation and death at the hands of an executioner, Paul concludes that he will not be put to shame, but he will, in that experience, give glory to Christ by offering up his body to the honor of the Lord. You see, I think what we draw from this is that we make a terrible mistake <clears throat> when we think that living for Christ and dying for Christ are two quite different things. They were not for Paul. We think that we can choose to live for Christ without also choosing to die for Christ. But Paul never saw it that way. Jesus himself has called us to take up our cross daily and to follow him. To live for him is to die daily for him. And in the end... It will mean we offer up our bodies for him. Paul's goal was that Christ would be exalted, whether in his life or in his death. And the reason, the reason for this, the second thought that I think we draw from this is, uh, Paul's reason is that his life and his death, all of it is already contained in Christ. All of it is already gathered together in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. What does that mean? 
how, how can Paul speak about gain that is greater than what he has in life with Christ? It's not that there is anything greater than Christ. It, it's simply this, that in his life he has Christ, but in his death he's actually able to enter in and uh, his life conform to the life of Christ so that Christ, even in his death, will be exalted. This is more fully the reason for this just stunning fearlessness of Paul in the face of imminent death. Uh, whether he lives or dies, Paul says he's going to be united with Christ. And that's all that matters. That is the Christian hope. That's all that matters. To me, to live is Christ in my present life. And in this life, what you see is not really my true life. This is not all that there is, praise the Lord. There, there is so much more. Christ is my proper life. His life has captured my own. This is Paul's message in so many different places. We've already read from Galatians 2 and verse 20, but allow me to read it for you again. Paul's words again, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. There's a certain manner in which Paul is speaking metaphorically here, and then yet there's another manner in which he's actually speaking literally. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. This is true of me, as true as could be. But Christ lives in me, he says. And then when he writes to the Colossians, <clears throat> chapter 3 and verses 2 to 4, he says this, um, Believers, set your minds on things above not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, who is your life, I love that. Christ who is your life, when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. Statements like these can only mean that Paul's relationship with Jesus Christ is so close, so consuming, so much of what he is that his entire existence derives its meaning from Christ, from what Christ experienced and what Christ has done. But note that this, this uh, pertains not only to Paul's life, but also to his death. And that's what he's talking about here. And so we, we see this unfolded in another of Paul's writings, the second letter to Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10 and the next. It says this, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. What does he mean? We carry the death of Jesus around in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Do you see how uh, when we listen to the Apostle Paul, we, we, we cannot separate living for Jesus from dying for Jesus? In fact, for Paul, his death is the capstone of a life that is dedicated to the exaltation of Christ. That Christ would be exalted in his death as the, the, the final and culminating moment of his life uh, so that he would have perfect union with Christ in his death as well as in his life. Well, this, this is what it is to die and for it to be gain. 
So Paul rejoices that he fills up in his flesh, as he says elsewhere, he fills up in his flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That there is, what he's speaking about is that there's an alignment of our life and our death with Christ. We live according to the pattern of Christ and we die according to the pattern of Christ. Dying in Christ is gain for Paul because it completes the unity and suffering with Christ which has characterized his life. The fitting conclusion to a life uh, which in Christ denies self and takes up its cross daily is that it finished the work by actually dying the death with Christ. This is one of those things I say is so real. It's so hard for us to get hold of. One of the persons in my memory that uh, reminds me of this um, recognition of even giving one's death for the honor and exaltation of Christ is Doug Wilson. You remember that name? We have an image here of of Doug Wilson. I have many happy memories of uh, of Doug Wilson. Uh, One of those, actually it was, uh, I grew up on a farm that, or at least no, that's, that's even claiming too much. I grew up on a little piece of land that was near farms, and, uh, and I learned a little bit about agriculture from that, but I didn't know too much about dairy, but Doug knew about dairy. And uh, he and Beth uh, had me over, and I sat in their living room, and I ended up learning a lot about uh, how, how cows are ranked and how, how they can be good or very good or excellent, and I had no idea about these things. To me, a cow was a cow. And, uh, but Doug knew different. And uh, there, was, there was something, though, that uh, struck me with force uh, as Doug realized his cancer was coming to the place where it was going to claim his life. And he knew that he had to set things in order. And he, Doug, as those of you who knew him, uh, you know that he lived his life in an extraordinary way, just self-giving and honorable and... Uh, He brought that life to a good close by dealing with all of his affairs so that his family could be blessed and uh, that he he could just give it to the Lord in in the fullest way that he could. It's in the final moment of giving it all to the Lord that a life that has lived in that way all along the way now comes to its ultimate consummation. For Paul, life and death are Christ's. They've been taken captive by him. Paul's own life, his own death, and his own resurrection to come, these are real, but they're just a tiny implication of the great life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul sees himself caught up in this. It's like the the life of Jesus is like this meteor that comes from the skies and, and, uh, you know, splashes into the ocean in such a powerful way that it reshapes the earth and the seas. And Paul's own life is just like a little ripple effect that extends from that great event. It's about Christ. And can I honor him with all that I am, including my death? With this in his heart, he deliberates deliberates out loud 
about how he can look forward to what is to come and how he can offer his very best to the Lord. And he actually uh, deliberates out loud in this text of what it might mean for the, for the believers of Philippi. You know, to go on living, well, that's going to mean fruitful labor, labor because Jesus is on the throne. And he is blessing, and he's already been celebrating. The gospel is, is advancing, even though I'm in prison. It's simply the power of the gospel of life in him. That's the way it is. But then also to die, and he's not certain that he will not die. He is, he, he, uh, he, to die is full fellowship with the Lord in his death. And he says, you know what, for, for me personally, that's the best. That's the best. That I would be able to give my life to honor him. I'm torn between the two, he said. Try maybe imagine it this way. <clears throat> this, uh, I don't mean to be irreverent here, but just imagine this. Paul, picture Paul winning the lottery, <clears throat> and uh, he's trying to decide which is better. You know, take the $250,000 a month for life, or take the $25 million now. Which, which is going to be better? How do, how do I decide which is going to be the best? For Paul, whether I live for Christ with, with my life going on, or whether I lay my life down for his honor now, it's, uh, to me, it is, uh, it, it is, it's wonderful options to have. The implications of this passage are undeniable. <clears throat> physical life, physical death, these are not of ultimate importance for Paul. Living means carrying out his calling to preach Jesus Christ, and dying means gaining conformity with Christ's death. And that means fellowship with Christ. And he hopes for the outcome that, in his opinion, is going to most advance the preaching of Christ, that Christ would be exalted. I'll say again, I, I, I think the reality of this is so forceful that it's hard in, in the unreal world that we often construct for ourselves to receive it. We've so alienated ourselves from the reality of death. We make sure it happens somewhere at a distance in the hospital or some other place so that we, we don't have to be quite so close to it. We try to make it as, uh, you know, as clean and as tolerable as possible. But Paul is dealing with the reality. And he says, when you face that reality full of confidence in Jesus Christ, who is the victor over death, well, that it just changes everything. It changes everything. It strikes us as strange, I think, in the modern church. If we've allowed comforts, creature comforts, to take the place of Christ in our lives, well, then it's just very hard to hear and understand what Paul is saying. But if it's being conformed to Christ, then the whole of it makes sense. And it lifts us above our you know, common everyday experience so that we can live in every moment and every circumstance for the exaltation of his name. Matthew Henry has, uh, has put this well. I think it's worth repeating. This is what he says, death is a great loss to a carnal, worldly man, for he loses all his earthly comforts and all his hopes. But to a true believer, it is gain. For it is the end of his weakness and misery 
It delivers him from all the evils of life and brings him to possess the chief good. I think that's so true, and I, I believe Paul would even emphasize the laying down of life in conformity to Christ is part of that chief good. The, the, the clarity and the sanity of, of Paul's life is, 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 is just powerful. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. One of the things that has been found in the ancient ruins of, uh, of ancient Roman times, uh, in ancient Carthage, actually, there's an inscription um, from not far from, from the time of Paul's writing. It's an inscription that is carved by a Roman soldier, and this is what that inscription says. <laughs> to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. Actually, I think there might be some around here who might say, yeah, you know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> uh, for this Roman soldier, for me, to live is to hunt, for, uh, to go to the baths, uh, and to party. But Paul's life says so much more. For me to live is Christ, and to die in conformity to him is gain. That's the rationale that Paul, that, that drives Paul, that shapes his thinking and shapes his understanding of his experiences. And then he goes on to tell us what, what his method is. Like, like, how is this going to happen? How will he, uh, how will he uh, lay down his life in such a way or continue to live in such a way uh, that it will be gained? Well, his method is this, that he will be unashamed and he will be undaunted in trial because he knows Jesus. In fact, he says, verse 20 there, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. What he's talking about here is as he's, as he's standing before the Roman tribunal, <clears throat> his, his eager hope, eager expectation is that he will not be ashamed, but he will, he, he will announce the gospel of Jesus Christ, even to the highest powers of the day. That term, uh, eager expectation, it, it's very strong, very strong. Uh, Paul uses it in Romans chapter 8 and verse 19, where he's speaking about creation's yearning, it's groaning, like in the pains of childbirth. It's, it's yearning for this outcome, great expectation for this to come. That's what Paul is experiencing. In fact, um, there's a Roman historian named Josephus, and he's just a little later uh, contemporary of Paul, and uh, he's writing about uh, the Roman soldiers as they're anticipating the coming of battle and taking another Galilean city not a great um, opposition to them, but the battle that they're going to face as they move into this victory. And uh, what uh, Josephus says is that they breathlessly awaited the hail of arrows. This battle is going to come, but they know their victory is through it. The word speaks about this great expectation and Paul's confidence. He sees this uh, upcoming test in court as a divinely appointed opportunity to defend the gospel and to lift up Jesus. We have trials to face ourselves, don't we? And sometimes uh, we tend to think our trials are greater than the trials of any other. And we, we lift them to a place they don't deserve. And then we think about them in a manner that is untrue to the confidence we have here. We have Christ. And we move through everything with this confidence 
unashamed and full of courage. Uh, Paul is actually anticipating that his, his uh, Philippian brothers and sisters will help along the way. And how are they going to do that? How will they help him? Well, just as Paul had prayed for the Philippians uh, that they would you know, steadily mature in their faith and grow up into fullness in all things of Christ uh, so that they will finally reach their uh, ultimate day pure and blameless. So now Paul believes that God's going to use the prayers of the Philippians while he's in prison to help him persevere with sufficient courage and ultimately to be unashamed as he stands his trial. This is one of the ways that we participate together. This is one of the ways we participate with those who are persecuted, truly persecuted these days by our prayers. God has ordained that they would be strengthened. This is how we bear with a brother a challenge or with a sister a struggle that has come her way that we might do it in prayer, and so together we see strength come. Oh, what, a, what a powerful call to prayer that is. Paul had strong examples of gracious dying, powerful dying in his past. Um, you know, he was there at the stoning of Stephen. Do you remember that? Uh, the first Christian martyr. <clears throat> and Stephen, in those moments as he was... Uh, he was forfeiting his life, uh, saw an incredible sight. He saw Jesus lifted up on the throne of heaven. <laughs> that brings a whole new reality to the experience of, of dying, to know that Jesus is on the throne. And so, in fact, it were, the, the text tells us bef before they actually got to the place of tossing the stones that Stephen's, Stephen's appearance was like an angel. He looked like an angel. And he gave a, a very powerful sermon that spoke about God's working in the life of national Israel, historical Israel, and how Israel had failed and they'd often got it wrong, but God was compassionate and gracious. And now God had sent Christ and Israel had rejected her Messiah. And we're told that uh, <clears throat> Paul stood there as the execution took place. In fact, he was there guarding the clothing of those who cast the stones. I don't think Paul ever got past Stephen. <clears throat> Stephen had asked for forgiveness for those who were stoning him, just the same way that Jesus did when he gave his life. And Paul had been instrumental there. Paul actually, the text tells us he approved, Acts 7 and 8, he approved of, uh, Paul approved of Stephen's martyrdom. Though I don't think that Paul could keep himself from being affected by that. That, that got into him. You, you see, Stephen gave his life. And it, it so worked its way into Paul that he couldn't free himself from the witness of one who had given his life so unashamedly, so courageously for Christ. And I would imagine that Paul was thinking, if my imprisonment serves to advance the gospel by stirring the brothers uh, to greater boldness, how much more courageous would my death uh, serve? How, like, how much more courage would it bring if I gave my whole life for them? Paul wants to see Jesus exalted. I hope that's where we are. In the grace of Christ, that's where we can be. This is not beyond our reach. 
This is not too real. There's finally this in this passage. Um, there's the result of uh, what Paul sees of, of all of this when he stands his trial and he does it with his confident assurance in, in the power of Christ ruling every moment. And as he sees these Philippian believers enter into his struggle with him through their prayers, the result is, Paul says, salvation. The result is deliverance. I love the way he says this in verse 19. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance deliverance now we could be confused by this because we might think that deliverance means paul is going to be free from prison and and uh, get out and enjoy his liberty uh in in that way but no paul's speaking about something far greater here he's actually using this term deliverance it's the word that we often translate salvation in fact paul uses it in that he uses just that word in just that way in other places in this letter this uh, term soteria means salvation paul is seeing that what is unfolding for him here even in his death it means salvation for him it means the salvation in that sense of the, the, the ultimate rescue from God's wrath on that final day. Salvation. That's what we come to celebrate. What's been, what has been worked for us through the, through the shedding of the blood of Christ and the breaking of his body for us as we come to the Lord's table. It's this salvation. Paul sees that all of this is working to his salvation. Not just a few more months of freedom, but ultimate salvation. He has in his heart and in his mind the fullness of resurrection hope. He has seen Jesus risen from the dead. He has seen the exalted Lord. And Paul lives every moment in light of that. This is, this is so different from any other paradigm for living. And here's how it comes to our lives, I think. I, I want to draw this to a close by asking two questions of us. Two questions. The first one is this. What are you living for? What are you living for? And like, if you're to fill in the blank, how would you do it? Uh, you know, I am, for me to live is blank. How do you fill in the blank? I think I would say, based on common observations, uh, I, I would say most Westerners would fill in the blank in one of these ways. They would say, for me to live is possessions. For me to live is just to acquire more and get all you can get. Um, just continue to get. Buy things you don't need. Um, do what you can with your money to impress people around you, even those people you don't like. <laughs> do you realize how dumb that is? <laughs> and how much we give ourselves to this? For me to live is possessions. Or, or we might answer this way, for me to live is pleasure. I just, I just want to, I just want to enjoy it. I just want to feel good. Anything to to bring pleasure into my life. That's what it's about. That's how I measure everything. Anything to relieve the boredom, even for one little moment. But pleasure doesn't do that. What are you living for? Some would answer: For me to live is power, or progress, or position or prestige, or popularity, or promotion, or whatever it might be. We dress for success, and we drive to impress. You know, you, you, you pay for your power lunch with your power card, and have a power nap, and, uh, you know, in, in, image is everything. 
But what does it mean? The problem with possessions and pleasure and power is that they have nothing of resurrection life in them. They don't last. They don't even last for a lifetime, much less for eternity. There, there isn't ultimate fulfillment in these things. Paul had one objective, and his one objective was that his life and his death were in the service of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. May we evidence the same love and commitment to Christ as Paul did. That's the first question. What are you living for? <clears throat> Here's the second question. What are you dying for? You see, I would say this is the question we are desperate not to ask. What am I dying for? We dare not speak this in public. This is not, uh, you know, we always say, you know, in, in public you ought not to speak about religion or politics. But one of the things that you have to add to that list is we never talk about death. It's just, it's just too unreal, it seems, for us. Or maybe too real. But here's the reality. <clears throat> you are dying. I hope that's not too depressing for you. you. You are dying. I am dying. Your body is aging. I'll say it out loud. My body is aging. Your time is running out. And just as surely as you are living now, you are also dying now. You know, it's kind of like an hourglass. The, the, the life in the upper chamber of the hourglass, it's running out. The dying in the lower chamber, it's filling up. And you can face the challenge, what am I living for, much more effectively if at the same time you face the question, what am I dying for? See, Jesus' life is so consuming in the most gracious and loving and compassionate way that it gathers us completely into its rich reality. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let all of our living and dying be in union with Christ and for his glory. Do you see how powerful this is? Do you see how practical this is in every part of our living? Well, may God give us the heart of Paul as he gives us the faith <clears throat> of Paul as we're gathered into the lordship and service of Christ so that with him we can say now as always this is my purpose that Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death may Jesus be exalted will you bow together with me we're going to pray ask our worship team to come and lead us as we lift our praise to Christ and then we'll celebrate together at his table let's pray together God, how gracious we are for the truth of your word, how much it means to us that you speak and what is true to us, and that by speaking what is true, you call us to a higher level of living. You, you, you call us to faithful response to Jesus. Lord, we would pray today, 
that you would give us just that faithful response to Jesus. If today is a day when we confess that, that we have not been a, a follower of Christ, but need to become a follower of Jesus and obtain the hope that he gives, the life that he graciously grants, then Lord, today bring faith to that heart. Let them confess their waywardness, their sin, and let them embrace the forgiveness of Christ and the power of his cross and resurrection. And let them follow. And Lord, today, if we, if we have to confess to you that we've allowed other things, creature comforts and uh, uh, other things that are not worthy, but we've given them the place that Jesus alone deserves, well, Lord, we confess our wrong and we confess that Jesus is right. And in life and in death, Lord, let it be let all that we are be to the exaltation of your glory. Hear us, our God, we pray. Bless in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.